0: need some more of that. One meaning of the word free is that it means not subject to the rule or control of another, the complete absence of external rule and the full right to make all of one's own decisions. We do celebrate our national freedoms this time of year, of course, based upon our founding documents and starting with the Declaration of Independence. We're grateful for those. As grateful as I am for our freedoms in the USA, uh, the downside can be that we make an idol of what I call autonomous human freedom. Autonomous is a word that means self-rule, that we rule ourselves. We think we are sovereign, and we have the ultimate right and ability to determine what is right for us. And we insist God must be subject himself to our autonomous human freedom. So the question is, is God sovereign or are we sovereign? Is God sovereign or are we sovereign? Does God have the ultimate right to determine what happens or do we have the ultimate right to determine what happens? So as God would have it in his sovereign plan, we're at Romans 9 today on our journey through Romans, and that provides the opportunity to talk about God's sovereignty, not just in a general way, but in God's sovereign mercy. God's sovereign mercy. Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Church in Manhattan, says, In the Bible, we we discover a real and complex God. If you have a personal relationship with any person, you will regularly be confused and infuriated by him or her. So you may have experienced that yet this week, confusion and infuriation with those that you know. Or, uh, you too will be regularly confounded by God that you meet in the Scriptures, as well as amazed and and comforted. So, my hope is that we'll be more amazed today and not confounded by God, but talking about God's sovereignty affords us the opportunity to consider, do we let God be God, or do we insist He fit our preconceptions? An important part of my duty to you is to say what the Word of God says. Say what the Word of God says. Um, this week I, had, I came across a quote that affirmed that. Your, your duty is to believe and to preach what the Bible says, not what you want it to say. So that's always a danger. And um, coming to Romans 9, one person said, I just skipped that chapter of the Bible. I used to just skip it. And it's easy to want to skip Romans 9 if you are struggling with the sovereignty of God. So where we have been, we've already covered the first 13 verses in Romans 9, so we're into it, so let's continue on, not skip it. And what we saw last week is Paul was addressing the problem of Israel's unbelief. And the question was, if so many of God's chosen people had rejected Jesus and so were not receiving the blessings God had promised to them, have God's purposes been thwarted? Has has his word failed? Paul shows that God's word has not failed because the promise was never intended to guarantee the salvation of every single Israelite. Physical descent from Abraham doesn't guarantee salvation. God chooses who will receive his promised blessings. He gave the example of, of God choosing Jacob, not Esau. He says, God chose Jacob and not Esau before they were born. This is in verses 11 and 12 of of Romans 9. Before they were born and before they had done good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God elects some to receive his promises in Christ, not because of anything they will be or do, but because of his own purposes. In other words, God elects unconditionally, unconditionally. And Paul knows that in teaching that and talking about that, uh, that raises objections. So let's look at Romans 9, verse 14 to 24, where Paul addresses a couple of those objections. Would you stand as we read the Word of God together, Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 24. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Father, this is your word and these are your people. Would you mercifully help me to make it clear? To say what you say, to not misinterpret your word, to not dumb it down, to not make it say what I want it to say, but what you want us to hear, what you have revealed to us about yourself. May we be amazed and and humbled, and may it drive us more deeply into love for Christ, trust in Christ, dependence upon Christ. Accomplish these things, Father. Accomplish your work and your people through your word, by your spirit, we ask, according to your great mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe may be seated. So Paul starts out with question and answer. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? If God decides apart from anything in the person whom he will choose or reject, how can he still be righteous? How can he be just? So he asks, he proposes the question being asked, is there injustice with God? Paul immediately rejects the mention of it. By no means, absolutely not, no way. But he doesn't just reject it, he gives a reason that it's not a valid criticism. So we see that in verse 15. The text he quotes is from Exodus 33:19. 19 in verse 15 of Romans 9. Moses had asked the Lord to show him his glory, for in seeing God's goodness, he will be assured God will not withdraw his presence from Israel. So he was concerned about God withdrawing because of Israel's sin and making the golden calf and worshiping the golden calf. So um, the Lord responded to Moses' request, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, the Lord. And then this is what Paul quotes, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, or I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So this is what this is what is going on. Moses said to God, show me your glory, Lord. And God said, I will show you my goodness and in do, so doing I will proclaim my name. So what's the glory of your goodness, Lord? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And what did you say your name is? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So that's how God has revealed himself. Uh, so, so how does this answer the objection that God is not righteous to elect people not based upon works, but upon his own purpose? God's name, which is the essence of his glory, so God's name and glory are kind of synonyms for one another. Uh, Consists in his absolute freedom to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. That's how he's revealed himself. That is who he is. God is the God who has mercy on whomever he has mercy. And his righteousness is his unwavering allegiance to always uphold and display his glory. So he must uphold and display his freedom in showing mercy if he is to be righteous. God doesn't have a standard of righteousness outside of himself. He's not subject to an independent review board. What magnifies and honors his name and glory is by definition righteous. So that's what—that's how God defines what is right. Whatever honors his name, whatever glorifies him is right. And the reason his name and his glory are so bound up with his free and sovereign mercy is that all humans are sinful and don't deserve that he should choose them and save them. No one deserves God's mercy. We don't deserve God's mercy. The only reason God can be righteous and save you or me is because he has mercy. Sovereign, free mercy. So again, here's Paul's answer to the criticism. God's righteousness consists in his unwavering commitment to uphold his name and his glory. God says his name and his glory consist in his absolute freedom in showing mercy. So to be righteous, he must choose the recipients of his electing mercy, apart from any foreseen good or evil, apart from anything that they are or do. So that leads to verse 16. Paul says, so then, so then. Here Paul draws the conclusion he wants us to get from verse 15. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, literally not on him who wills or runs, but on God who has mercy. So then, it, what is it? What is it in this sentence? It is receiving God's mercy or saving promises. So receiving God's salvation, his saving promises, his mercy, doesn't depend on human will or human effort but on God who has mercy. And Paul's made that clear already in in verses 11 and 12 that he excludes human works as the basis on which he elects and calls us to receive his saving promises. This verse, verse 16, declares in the strongest possible terms that human free will is not the determining factor in God's election of people. That's humbling. It's God's sovereign mercy. And then in verse 17, he continues giving another reason, uh, addressing the the criticism about God's electing people to receive His saving promises before and apart from anything they are or do, saying that that makes God unjust. Once again, he cites an example from the Scripture to show how God is righteous in His sovereignty and His purposes of election. The verse Paul quotes is from Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. It takes place in the account of um, the seventh plague. So God sent the ten plagues on Egypt to to get Pharaoh to release Israel. And uh, so in Exodus chapter 9 leading up to verse 16, I'll just read the verses preceding that from Exodus chapter 9. This is what uh, God is telling Moses to say to Pharaoh. It's like a coach giving the game plan just before the game. Okay, now you say to Pharaoh this, and he's going to say that, and I'm going to do this, and this is what the plan is. God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, Let my people go, that they may serve me. I am sending my plagues upon you, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with Pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. God was saying, I could have wiped you out off the earth already if that was my purpose, but I have a greater purpose. And that leads to what he says in in Exodus 9.16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God was saying to Pharaoh, I raised you up in your role in history, in your place in the world scene, in your power over my people, to show my much greater power to you and through you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So you get the idea that God is about having his name proclaimed in all the earth, spreading his glory throughout the nations. He's making that very clear, isn't he? God could have caused Pharaoh to be a weak leader or even a really nice guy, so that when Moses said, let my people go, Pharaoh might have answered, okay, if you must. I only want what's best for them. I just want them to be happy anyway. So um, don't forget to write. He could have responded that way. Instead, God raised Pharaoh up, so that as Pharaoh kept refusing God's demands, God's power could be displayed in a more spectacular way and God's name would be proclaimed among all the nations. So that's what he said. I raised you up for that purpose, Pharaoh. That's why why I, I raised you up. Verse 18, so then, he draws another conclusion. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul has made it really clear that God has mercy on whomever he wills. Now he adds that God hardens whomever he wills. Where did Paul get that? Exodus 9.16 didn't say anything about hardening. And what does it mean to harden? Well, the context of Exodus 9.16 is, is chapters 4 through 11 in Exodus. So 11 chapters in Exodus cover Pharaoh versus Moses. Pharaoh versus Israel. In fact, um Exodus 9:16 summarizes the theme of, of Exodus 4 through 14. The, the word "harden" occurs 14 times in that passage. The word means to make spiritually insensitive, resistant to God and His Word. So we get the word "arteriosclerosis," mouthful, uh, meaning hardening of the arteries, from from that word. Some of the references in Exodus 4 through 14 speak of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And some of the references speak about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. In Exodus 4:21, God says, "I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go." And in Exodus 14:4, 4, when um, Israel is backed up against the Red Sea and, and the Egyptians are after him, God says, I will, "I will harden Pharaoh's heart so he will pursue you and I will get glory." So it's been God's agenda to get glory through hardening Pharaoh's heart. What Paul concludes from the passage is that just as God has mercy on whomever he wills, so he hardens whomever he wills. That is how he glorifies his name in all the earth. Now Paul knows in saying that, that brings up a, a huge objection, a huge question. And that leads to verse 19. Paul presents the question, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? How can God hold people responsible for their unbelief and rebellion if these are the result of his will, whether to have mercy or to harden? If God shows mercy and hardens whomever he wills, regardless of human effort or choice, then how can he blame people for their choices and actions? That's the question. At this point, Paul could have easily answered like, like many might today. Oh, no, you misunderstood me. You, you just misinterpreted what I said. He could have said, uh, people can resist God. They can resist his call to salvation. People resist God's will all the time, all over the world. What I meant was that God influences people, yes, but but our salvation is partly from our free will and partly from God. God knows what our choices will be, so his choosing or not choosing us is based on that. But that isn't Paul's answer. In part because he's not talking about just resisting God's moral will because that happens every day. Pharaoh resisted God's moral will. Pharaoh continued to say, I'm not going to let your people go. I'm I'm, I'm standing opposed to you, God. He opposed God quite a bit. But what he couldn't overcome was God's decreed will, God's decree that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened. Nor does Paul say, since God is sovereign over our decisions and actions, you're right, he doesn't find fault. He doesn't hold us responsible for our choices. That's not how he answers either. In other words, Paul believes that God is absolutely sovereign in all things and that people are responsible for their decisions and their actions. God is absolutely sovereign over all things and at the same time people are responsible for their their actions and decisions. Charles Spurgeon was a 19th century London pastor and he was once asked how he could reconcile the apparent contradiction between these, the two truths of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. He replied, I never have to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and, and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. I do not need to reconcile what God has joined together. He said, where these two truths meet, I, I do not know, nor do I want to know. They do not puzzle me since I believe them both. In other words, Spurgeon simply embraced both God's sovereignty and human responsibility as clearly taught in the Scripture. He, accept, he accepted that how God's sovereignty and our responsibility are both true is a mystery beyond human understanding. And so we're faced with that same issue. Are we going to try to figure it out and reject it? Or are we going to let both stand as they're taught in the Scripture? Let's see how Paul does answer this objection. In verse 20, Paul sounds like he's rebuking the questioner. But who are you, O oh man? Remember, you're just a human being. Who, who are you? Who do you think you are to, to um, answer back to God? That's because Paul has detected in the question. Not a humble posture of seeking to understand as much about God as, and His ways as possible. What Paul does here in the question is a critical rejection of God having ultimate sovereignty, even though humans are still accountable. He just that's the, that's the the objection. The word for answer back means to express disapproval or criticize in return. The objection manifests a rebellious spirit. That refuse, refuses to accept a world in which God is sovereign and people are still responsible. He gives a further example uh, in verse, the latter part of verse 20. What will what, well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Paul's point is simple God is creator, we are created. To presume to advise God as as to how he ought to do things is as ludicrous as an iPhone griping to Apple. Of course, maybe Siri has griped to Apple. I don't know. Or has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and, and another for dishonorable use? The potter has the right or the authority over the clay to make it what he pleases. We have a couple potters in this church, Dave and Bonnie Deal. Are they still here? I don't see them. They must be out doing pottery. So I wonder if the potter, potter pot, what they've made has ever rebelled against them. They exercise sovereign authority over the clay they use. They have absolute freedom to do with the clay according to their purpose. The potter has the right to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor and one for dishonor. That he can make vessels for different purposes out of the same lump of clay means the chosen had no special merit or distinction in themselves. They came out of the same raw materials, simple humanity. It is the potter's purpose that makes one for uh, honorable use, like a chalice, and the other for dishonorable use, like a chamber pot. We don't use chamber pots much these days, but back in the day they used them. If you don't know what they are, you can look it up on Google. In light of the objection that if God, God's will cannot ultimately be resisted, he can't hold people accountable for their choices. You might think Paul would have backed off on God's sovereignty and saving the people. You might think he'd say, hey, wait, wait a minute, I've, this has gone too far. I need to back off. But he doesn't. In fact, in these illustrations, he's, he's illustrated it in, in the strongest possible terms. That God has absolute right to do with what he wills with his, with his creatures. Now he will pull the veil back and reveal something of God's purpose in choosing some and not choosing others for salvation. Some for honor, some for dishonor. You see it in verse 22 and 23. So Paul, Paul says this in verse 22 What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? God has a twofold purpose in leaving some for dishonor, for for judgment. He desires to show his wrath and to make his power known. But he doesn't immediately show his wrath and his power and judgment. He's not bringing that down now. He endures with much patience vessels of wrath, people who will receive God's wrath as they are prepared for destruction. In Pharaoh's situation, God endured with patience Pharaoh's resistance to God's demands. God desired to show his wrath and power, but by delaying the judgment on Pharaoh, God made his glory known through his wrath and power in a much more spectacular way than if he had immediately destroyed Pharaoh. But God has a more ultimate purpose for patiently tolerating vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He says that in verse 23. God has patiently endured vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He has withheld his full wrath against them in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. This way, the full range of the glory of his character will be more completely displayed for his vessels of mercy by his patiently enduring them. The vessels of mercy didn't deserve God's mercy. They deserve to be vessels of wrath. That's the nature of us all. But God freely, sovereignly chose them to receive his mercy and and prepared them beforehand for glory. This is what Paul said back in chapter 8, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. God pre-designed to set his love and grace upon a people to bring them all the way to glory. When vessels of mercy see the awful wrath of God upon the disobedient when God brings His judgment in full and recognize that the only reason they are not receiving the same wrath is that God has had mercy on them, then they will appreciate the riches of God's glory in a deeper way. They will see the blazing light of God's righteousness as beyond what they ever imagined and will glorify God for His amazing patience toward vessels of wrath. You've seen this in people patiently enduring wrongs done to them. So you know somebody who has power over another person, and they're they're being wronged in a big way, and they're patiently enduring them. And then you recognize, wow, isn't that amazing how a person patiently endured their, their 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 abuse? And that's how vessels of mercy are going to see it when God brings His wrath in full judgment one day. So God's purpose in withholding judgment now on those who will receive His wrath. This is God's purpose in withholding judgment now on those who will receive his wrath. It's to magnify the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy who will enjoy his glory forever. And Paul says in verse 24 that God has called some vessels of mercy from both the Jews and the Gentiles. God has prepared and called some as vessels of mercy from the Jews even though many have rejected Christ and some from the Gentiles. I don't know what you think about Paul's presentation of God's sovereign mercy, but I I suggest a few things in terms of how, how do we respond to it. For one thing, God's purpose is bigger than us as individuals. It concerns us as individuals, but it's bigger than that. God is seeking seeking to spread the fame of his name throughout all the nations. So we should be praying that God's name and glory continues to spread among all peoples because that's God's purpose. His name and his glory to spread among all peoples. In Egypt, in Israel, in Cameroon, in Sudan, in Camas, in Portland, in Seattle, in Iran, in Iraq, in Bhutan, in Nepal, in India, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, in Indonesia, Tibet, Mongolia, China, Japan, North Korea. God is seeking to spread his glory among all the nations. We should also be very sobered and in awe of God's great, terrible coming wrath. His wrath is coming and it's going to fall, and we should be very sobered by that and and be amazed at God being so holy that he must judge sin with wrath. And then we should be very humbled and grateful for the riches of his free and sovereign mercy. We should be humbled and very grateful for the riches of his free and sovereign mercy, recognizing that it's only by God's mere mercy that we're not going to endure his wrath. And it's only by God's mere mercy that we're going to enjoy him in his glory with his people forever. Paul says in, in another letter to Titus, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, all people. He says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Jesus Christ took on human flesh. He obeyed God to, perfectly for us he took the wrath due to us in his death on the cross as he shed his blood and he shows his great mercy toward us by inviting us into a relationship with him and he gave us the gospel he gave us his word to affirm that and he gave us the communion meal he invites us to reaffirm our trust and dependence upon him he reaffirms his merciful saving work for us, his love for us in the communion meal. It doesn't happen magically. It doesn't happen just by going through the motions, but but because of his setting it up for us and and uh, giving it to us to celebrate his presence and his his love for us on and on throughout throughout the ages until he returns. Uh, we take the bread, which is represented of his body, and the cup representing his blood, in full acknowledgment that. It's only because of Christ, only through Christ that we receive the mercy of God. So we have three communion places for you to come and take the elements. We're going to serve them to you. We're going to pray with you. And um, it's, it's for those of you who have accepted Christ, who have received Christ as your Savior, who have confessed him as Lord, who are trusting in his blood and his body alone to save you. His resurrected body, his shed blood on the cross. Communion gives us a taste for our future full enjoyment of the glory of his presence, a full communion with him. So I'll pray and we'll prepare our hearts for receiving the communion. Father, we confess that we're humbled and sobered by. The fact that only by your mercy are we not going to receive your wrath. Your son absorbed that on the cross for us in his great mercy. We thank you for sending us the greatest gift of salvation and life in Jesus. We thank you, Father, that we can fully count on him and his death and resurrection and his Ongoing life for us in your in your very presence, to save us, to give us life, to give us hope, to cleanse us, purify us, keep us in your promised salvation. so Father, prepare our hearts, cause us to um, hate the sins that still plague us that still interfere with, with our relationship with you, and yet. You totally overcome it through the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so we, we come to him, Father, not as those who by any means can earn back your favor, but by those who because you have chosen us, because you have had mercy on us, because you've shown us your grace in Christ, we can fully trust that he is totally able to save us from to, to the uttermost. Thank you for so amazing a gift of Jesus Christ in your sovereign mercy that you've given to us in Him. Amen.